Hello and welcome. This is Artist Unknown, a series of talks exploring objects and works of art from across the University of Cambridge collections, where the maker, as sometimes read on a label, is Artist Unknown. Why are they unknown? Is it important that we know? And how much can an object tell us about the person who made it? In this episode, Josh Nall from the Whipple Museum of the History of Science delves into the murky depths of fakes and the makers who aim to deceive. I'm Dr Joshua Nall. I'm the curator of modern sciences in the Whipple Museum of the History of Science. I'm a historian of science, uh, in particular historian of scientific instruments and in particular uh, from the modern period, so from about 1800 to the present. So I'm going to be talking about uh, a couple of objects that we've got on display in the exhibition. Um, they're small, rather beautiful metal objects. One is a small silver globe of the Earth, um, and it's signed by a cartographer that would suggest that this was made in the late 16th century, so a very rare and early survival uh, from very early globe making. However, um, it's in this exhibition, even though it's signed, because actually it's a fake. So uh, the signature is a forgery, it's intended to deceive, and the actual maker is unknown because they wanted to remain unknown. Because this object, we believe, we've done a lot of research into it, we think that it was made in the early 1920s probably, uh, and it was, in, it was made to sell to a collector to make money to deceive. So unlike many of the objects in this exhibition, here we have an example where the artist is unknown because the artist wanted to keep their identity secret. So the silver globe is an exquisite object. You can see why Whipple paid quite a lot of money for it when he purchased it. Um, it's small enough to fit in your hands. It's about uh, 100 millimeters in diameter. And in fact, that metric size gives you one clue to the fact that it might not be early 16th century. It's silver. It's very shiny. It's been hand engraved with um, uh, a map of the Earth. And one of the reasons that it's so beautiful still is that, unlike a lot of silver objects, rather curiously, it's never seemed to tarnish. And this is one of the reasons why um, the director of the Whipple Museum, Professor Lieber Taub, when she came to the museum in the mid-1990s, she was rather suspicious of this object. She wasn't really sure. She thought if it was made of silver, you would have thought it had tarnished. And that's what actually instigated the initial investigation into it as potentially fake. And what we discovered is we performed um, X-ray fluorescence analysis on it. So effectively, um, we found its metal composition and we discovered that it's rhodium electroplated. And this is a technique that's first developed in the early 1920s to preserve silver objects and stop silver objects from tarnishing. And Robert Whipple bought this object in the mid-1920s. So it's another key clue that this piece was manufactured probably not that long before Whipple purchased it. And the other object is an astrolabe. An astrolabe is, uh, 
it's a beautiful object. Most astrolabes are very beautiful and they're often collected purely for their beauty. They are calculating devices. They are designed to be a disc, often typically made of brass, that carries um, a projection of the celestial sphere on it, so a model of the night sky. And on top is laid a really intricate network of brass with lots of little pointers. At the tip of each pointer is the position of a prominent star in the night sky. So if you rotate what is called the reti, uh, you're rotating the stars in the night sky. And then on top of this is laid uh, a ruler, and by rotating the disc and the ruler against the background projection, you can actually model the night sky. And so you can use it to perform calculations for where objects in the night sky will be in the future or where they have been in the past. Um, and this example is also signed. Uh, it's signed by a maker named Johannes Bosch, and it's dated. It's dated to 1597. But rather curiously, it's also actually dated to the day. It's dated to the 24th of March, 1597. And like the Silver Globe, it's fake. So it wasn't actually made by Johannes Bosch. And this astrolabe is really the start point to understanding the story of fake scientific instruments in general, because it's the first ever instrument that was identified as a forgery. Uh, it was identified as a forgery in the Whipple Museum in the early 1950s. And the reason it was identified is actually that specific date. It's very unusual for a scientific instrument to be dated to the day, just as it would be unusual to find a painting dated to the day. Normally, they're just dated to the year. One of my predecessors in the museum, Derek Price, was working there in the early 1950s, and he was researching early instruments in the collection. And he made a curious discovery. He was looking at catalogues of astrolabes in other collections, and he noticed that several other collections had astrolabes by Johannes Bosch. But he also noticed that they were also dated to the exact same day. And so he thought to himself, either Johannes Bosch made three astrolabes on the same day, or something rather fishy is going on. And that was really the start point for Price investigating fake scientific instruments. And the end point of his investigation was he found five fakes in the Whipple collection. But he also was able to find equivalent, quite similar fakes in collections in many uh, museums across Europe. And he traced all of these fakes back to really one source, one place, Amsterdam, and one dealer in Amsterdam. Most of the fakes appeared to be connected to two collections that were sold in the 1910s and 1920s um, by uh, an antique dealer, an auctioneer in Amsterdam named Anton Mensing. And so Price really discovered what are now called the Mensing fakes. That might be a slightly unfair name because Anton Mensing himself is uh, probably not responsible for these forgeries. He's, there are differing views on this, but he's probably an unwitting uh, agent in the emergence of these forgeries. But clearly his instruments that he was dealing were the basis for all of these forgeries, of which there are several dozen now known across Europe. Um, 
So this raises an obvious question, which is why make fake scientific instruments? We know in the case of, say, old master paintings that sometimes fakes uh, can be sold for very large amounts of money and the, and the impetus there is very obvious. Um, it's not quite as clear with fake scientific instruments. Some of the instruments that we're talking about probably would have been sold in the 1910s or 1920s for £50 or £100, quite large sums of money, but not huge amounts. So some of the research that we've done in the museum to try and understand these fakes is actually a broader research into the question of antique dealing and collecting and why these might have been made. Certainly no one we don't think was getting super rich off of making fake scientific instruments. And so actually what's interesting about researching them is that there are a number of plausible explanations for how they got made. In general, they appear to have been copied, copied particularly from pictures of Anton Mensing's sales catalogues. So the fakes tend to be the same size as the photographs from the sales catalogue, and they tend to only carry one side of an instrument. You flip the instrument over and there's nothing on the back because the forger could only see the photograph. We have um, a suspicion that in the case of the uh, Bosch Astrolabe, for example, and a few other of the fakes, that there were some brothers, uh, antique dealers and antique restorers in Amsterdam, named the Fetiersi brothers, who may have been responsible for these fakes. So we might know the artist for the Astrolabe. The Fetiersi brothers were certainly part of a larger group in the early 20th century who were dealing in lots and lots of metal objects. And there have been suggestions that they were, shall we say, a little bit fast and loose with questions of authenticity, questions of restoration. They may have augmented things, and sometimes they may have made things entirely whole cloth as forgeries to sell. And it seems like that's one potential explanation. Another that has been posited by Price himself, actually, in the 1950s, was simply that these forgeries were made as practice for instrument restoration and that they entered the market accidentally, that one of the Fittizzi brothers might have been making them to kind of test their skill, to improve their abilities, and that then much later, maybe 10 or 20 years later, they made their way onto the market as um, one of the Fatirzi brothers started selling off lots of their stock. Um, what's really interesting about the Silver Globe is that one of the things that we've discovered is that that's definitely not a mensing fake. It has no link to the Amsterdam connection at all. So in that case, we definitely can't say, oh, it might be made by the Fatirzi brothers. Um, the globe itself, it's a copy of, um, we know it's a copy of globe gauze, which is to say printed, a printed uh, map uh, that's printed in such a way that it can be pasted onto a sphere. And that map is Italian, so it's possible that the forgery itself might come from Italy. Um, and we've recently, the museum has recently acquired another forgery uh, that likewise has the provenance that we can trace back is that it's from a collection in Italy. So we might there have a suggestion that there is also uh, someone at some point, maybe the late 19th century, maybe the early 20th century, making forgeries in Italy. Again, 
we can't absolutely say with any clarity why they might have been doing this. Could be simply for financial gain. But one of the things that's striking when you look at these objects, both the globe and the astrolabe, is that they're really beautifully made. Um, they're really exquisitely made. Uh, they were bought by Robert Whipple, the founder of the Whipple Museum. Um, his collection founded the museum. And Whipple bought them thinking that they were genuine, and he paid quite a lot of money for them. And it's very easy to see why he did that. They're not obviously fake. They're beautifully executed, and they must have taken quite a lot of time to make, quite a lot of effort to make. So whether the forgers were really going to make lots of money out of this is an interesting question. But then, of course, we know a lot from scholarship in the area of forgery that that's often the case, that sometimes forgers who forge uh, a Vermeer painting, it will take them you know, a year or two years to, to, to make a forgery. And sometimes their motivations, therefore, are more for uh, personal glorification or because they want to see if they can get one past the experts. Um, they want to see if their expertise is better than the expertise of the, the connoisseurs and the curators and the collectors. So one of the things that is interesting about looking at and studying these fakes is it gives us a bit of a window onto the collector's market. Uh, the early 20th century is really the beginnings of a market for collecting antique scientific instruments. Very few people collected scientific instruments as antiques. Uh, a few did in the 19th century, but really in the early 20th century, that's when a market starts to grow. And as we often see in the art market, as a market grows, forgeries start to emerge to kind of infiltrate this market. So it's understandable, I think, that Robert Whipple bought these pieces. Um, shortly um, before he passed away in the mid-1950s, uh, Price and uh, his boss, um, Rupert Hall, did apparently go to Whipple and explained to him that one or two of the pieces that he had bought were fakes. And he apparently took it very stoically and, and understood and agreed with their assessment. Um, and so I think that indicates that he kind of, as a, as a collector, he was aware that you always had to be on your toes when you're, when you're buying things and sometimes you, you might get duped. Thank you, Josh. If ever there was a good reason for an artist to be unknown, that was it. This series of talks is born from a Kettles Yard exhibition in collaboration with the University of Cambridge Museums, titled Artist Unknown. It brings together works of art from across the university's collections from July to September 2019. If you're listening during that time period and a trip is possible, make sure to visit. Thanks for listening. <laughs>